trust everyone had a good uh, 4th of July celebration uh, this weekend, yesterday, and uh, got to be with people you love and care about. Um, one thing I might just add to the announcement Matt made is um, it is it's a real-life church family fun event, but it's certainly open to... Uh, we want to invite friends and others uh, as well. So if you're if you happen to be be visiting today, or uh, maybe you don't quite consider yourself part of the real life church family, you are certainly welcome to come on July 19th, and you're welcome to bring neighbors and friends and other family members as well. So come on and come out and join us with that. I'm so glad to be here um, today um, and worship with you and be with you. So. I'm going to read out of Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open. I'm going to read several verses today. And uh, today's going to be just a little bit different than a typical, than at least a typical message for me. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 1 to 14, then we'll pray, and then I'll kind of let you know where we're going today. Ephesians 5, uh, verses 1 to 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light." Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Fathers, we open up your word now, and as we um, just humble ourselves before you, would you come by your spirit and speak to us and minister to us? And would you give a sweet and, and even a solemn sense that you're here among us today? Um, that we would have ears to hear, a heart that is ready to just receive, and, Lord, that we would leave um, having heard from you. Um, God, we need you. I need you today, Lord. I pray for your Spirit to fill me. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Give me your words. Give me your heart. Give me your affections, your emotions that what is said today would be not just right theologically, but right um, emotionally as well. So God, come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said earlier, you know, it's going to be a little different morning this morning. I want, here's what I want to do this morning. 
Um, I want to take a few minutes here at the beginning and address uh, the Supreme Court ruling from about a week and a half ago. And then look at how we should respond using Ephesians 5 verses 1 to, 8, verses 1 to 14. Um, if you're visiting today, um, we, we are not a political church. I mean, people here have political persuasions. Uh, I'm glad you came this morning, and I wouldn't want to give you the impression that this is the kind of message we give from week to week. We want to preach God's word. But there are times when things are happening in the world that, you know, to, um, to not address them is almost to seem like we're just burying our heads in the sand and aren't really in tune with what's going on around us. I heard somebody one time say, we need to, we need to be able to speak into the things that are on people's minds. And no doubt this is probably on your mind or has been. Um, you know, two days that live in infamy, lots of days live in infamy, but two days, at least in my mind, that um, live in infamy are one January 22nd, 1973, where the Supreme Court ruled in favor of um, legalizing abortion. And, of course, what's left in the wake of that is horrific. Um, and another one is, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll continue to see this five years, ten years, twenty years from now, uh, Friday, June 26th, 2015, when the Supreme Court of the United States said that homosexual marriage is now the law of the land, effectively redefining the meaning of marriage. Now, when that came down, I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't surprised by it. I, you, if you were in tune with it at all, you probably weren't either. Um, but, but the expectation of something and the actual arrival of something are two different things, right? I mean, you're expecting a baby, there's joy, there's excitement. When the baby comes, it's exponentially increased, hundredfold or something. The expectation of the ruling and the actual arrival of the ruling were very, it was, it was different. The weight of this seemed to hit me with unusual force this past week and a half. Um, John Piper, uh, the day that the ruling came out, said he called the redefining of marriage to include gay couples the new cal- calamity. He said, what's new is not the celebration or approval of homosexual sin. And that's not really new. I mean, that's been happening, I mean, even even here. I mean, it's been happening for millennia, but even here in our country, it's not that new. Um, But what's new, he says, is the normalization and institutionalization. This is the new calamity. And one thing I want to do this morning here just in, in the next few moments is I really want us to feel the weight of this um, biblically before God in humility, not so that we are pessimistic and doubters and hang our heads in defeat, but just that we would see this in reality as it really is. So I want us to feel the weight of this for at least a few reasons. One, it is an affront to God and a profaning of marriage as God has already defined it. it, That's what it is. Uh, We don't have to be mean when we say that, but that is what it is. In fact, we shouldn't say it with harshness or rudeness. Psalm 119, 136, the psalmist says this, a men's group a couple weeks ago, we talked about this verse. 
And it just, when, when the ruling came out, I mean, this is like the first verse that came to my mind, that, oh, Lord, give me a heart like this. It says, my eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. I'm going to love God and love his law and love his ways and to love marriage as God has defined it, that we would weep even. In truth, however, five-robed lawyers redefining marriage is not possible. They can't do it in truth, right? It's like deciding that triangles now have four sides. We would say, no, there are only three sides to a triangle. And Christians that want to be faithful to the scriptures, we say, no, they, in, in truth, they cannot redefine what God has already defined. God has defined marriage. In fact, one thing I would, I would love for you to, to be thinking about this next week, next couple of weeks, maybe you already have been, but is if somebody were to come to you and say, well, tell me why you think marriage is this way, that you'd be able to open up your Bible and, and take them to three, four, five verses and just say, because it says this here, it says this here, and you know, go to Genesis 1, 27, and say, well, God created male and female in his image. Take him to Genesis 2, where it says, verse 24, I think, where it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then take him to Matthew 19, where Jesus affirms this and says, quoting, really, Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 24, and says, God made them male and female, which is why a, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Or to take them to Ephesians 5.22 and following, the, the last part of Ephesians 5, which culminates in the verse, verses 31 and 32. But these verses talk about how marriage is about something more than just even two heterosexual, uh, heterosexual couple coming together and satis- being satisfied sexually and all that. Okay, that's, that's great, but it's, it's more than that. Or even, you know, procreation, all the good things that marriage has for us. But Verses 31 and 32 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, again quoting Genesis 2, and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Listen to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And the highest aim of God in marriage is that it would, husbands and wives, a man and a woman brought together in union, a covenantal commitment, is meant to be a spotlight for Christ and the church. The way a husband loves his wife, as Christ loved the church, the way a woman submits and loves and respects her husband as the Lord. So we should feel the weight of this because it is, it is a profaning of marriage as God has defined it. We should also feel the weight of this because there are lives at stake. Those who are caught in this lifestyle, their lives are at stake and others who will be influenced by them. And I want to make something very clear. There is a difference between struggling with the temptation and being given over to a lifestyle. All right? I just have to make that ab- abundantly clear. I'm not talking about those that have same-sex attractions. I'm talking about those who are living the lifestyle. Their lives are at stake. The tsunami of sin... Excuse me, this tsunami of sin will bring a tsunami of misery. It will. Romans 1.27 says, Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves 
the due penalty of their error. It'll lead to misery and more confusion. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Yesterday, I, I saw NPR on their website. Uh, I mean, just, I went to, I almost started crying. I mean, just, I mean, heartbreaking. I saw this, the story on NPR News, something they're celebrating that a little three-year-old named Jack is transitioning to Jackie. I mean, talk about the confusion in our culture right now. It only, incre- I mean, it only increases with this ruling. I mean, I, and I'm not, may God have mercy on us, right? And the end is eternal separation from God. And I'm gonna, we'll see that in our text here today. Number three, the re- third reason why we should feel the weight of this is that at some point the church will probably be in the crosshairs. What does this mean for the church? Well, it's hard to say exactly. I know some want to exaggerate it. That's, that's going to mean, you know, an avalanche of litigation, all that stuff right away. And others say, well, it probably won't mean anything. Who knows exactly what it'll mean. Uh, one thing that, that we need to be firm about and strong about, and you need to know, is that, is that we have no business capitulating to the cultural pressures. Um, and I don't say this with any bravado at all. I say this before God with humility. We will not perform gay weddings here. We will never condone them. We will never say it's okay. There are plenty of people who want to punish all vestiges of dissent like that. So what does it mean for the church? Well, who knows? At some point, probably something. So this may cost us at some point, but so, I mean, in a sense, so be it, right? So be it. We will serve the Lord. But let's also be clear about something else. God has placed us in this world at this time for this present situation. It has not taken God by surprise. God is sovereign, absolutely. And he has placed us here at this time for this situation. So you are just the right person to live in your neighborhood. And to rub shoulders with the people you rub shoulders with. You are just the right person. So we should have not only sorrow and feel the weight of this, but also hope that God will work and even use us. So how do we respond? Well, I think Ephesians 5, although it's, it, it's not like this is the context from which Ephesians 5 comes, but Ephesians 5 certainly addresses how do we respond to this? Well, verse 1 says very plainly, we want to imitate God. I mean, when something like this is happening, it's like you say, we need, we need God to come, right? We just need him to come. And God here addresses us and says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The Greek word for imitators is mimites, which is where we get the word for mimic. It means to copy him. It means to, to be like God. So we say, we need God to come. And God says, I've sent you. Imitate me. Be like me. And so we're told to imitate God in three ways here. We're told to imitate God in Walking in love, one. Walking 
as children of light, two, and exposing darkness, three. Let's take those one at a time. So we want to imitate God in, in, in light of this present uh, avalanche of abomination, you might say, or just this avalanche of sin, we want to walk in love. There's, <clears throat> there's no place for hatred. There's no place for true bigotry and true prejudice. You may be called that. But don't give them any legitimate reason to call you that. We're to walk in love. We are to walk in love. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're to walk in love. We're not just to talk about love. We're not just to celebrate love. We should celebrate love. Celebrate God's love. We're not just to sing about love. We should do that too. In fact, we should sing louder about God's love than ever before. Our worship should be stronger and deeper. But we are told here to walk in love. The word walk is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.1. When at the beginning of this sermon series, right, we were talking about having been set free and saved by God's inexhaustible grace for us, how do we now live? And Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We're to walk a certain way. Here Paul says, walk in love. Walk in love. I'm thankful that Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Paul points us to Jesus. Aren't you thankful? If all I get is love better, then I'm challenged, but I feel powerless to do it. But he points us to Christ, and he points us to Christ for two different, way, two different reasons. One, he wants to remind us of the love of Christ. He wants that love to land on us in a fresh way so that we are empowered to love others. And then, two, he wants us to follow the example of Christ. So he wants to remind us of the love of Jesus. He wants, us to re- he wants to remind us of Christ's love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, Christ's love for us is not sentimental and sappy and weak and pathetic. No, it drove him to give himself up for us on the cross. It drove him to the cross. That's Christ's love for us. We need to know the love of Christ for us and see his great love for us. Not just intellectually, we need to know it in deep and rich experience. Because that's when it starts to change the inner working of our hearts. Whenever someone says, hey, listen, I just I struggle getting along with so-and-so, my spouse, and, and uh, I just, man... I feel like I'm ready to call it quits. And, and, and I've had conversations like this. And I say, well, I say other things too. But one of the things I say is, when you know Christ's love for you, it strengthens you and encourages you and empowers you to love someone who is unlove, unlovely and hard to love. And the response oftentimes is, oh, I know his love for me. I already know that. <clears throat> but... 
No. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls me. Because I have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. The love of Christ, Paul says, controlled him or or compelled him. May it do the same for us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, using almost the same phrase, he says that the life of faith is to be lived in the one who loved me, he said, and gave himself up for me. Right? I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. He wants to remind us of the love of Christ. But I think he also wants to point to Jesus as, as our example. The one has to precede the other. We need to see, we need his love to land on us first. I mean, really land on us. But then we want to follow in his example. The word love here is, the Greek word is agape. There are three Greek words translated love in the New Testament. There's eros love, there's phileo love, and there's agape love. Eros love is like romantic love. Phileo love is like brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And agape is, is this, this love where we, we choose to love somebody. And we love, and we love, and we love, and we expect nothing in return. It is love for the undeserving. It is love that makes sacrifices. It is love that lays our life down for others. It is love that gets really uncomfortable in loving others. And Paul says, we are to love. We're to walk in this kind of love. That's how Christ loved us, right? We were fully undeserving. Was anyone here deserving of his love? Don't raise your hand. Talk to me after church, okay? I'm joking. No one, we don't, we know we're not. We are not worthy of it. We are not deserving of it. And yet he poured it out upon us lavishly. And we're to walk in this kind of love because he's loved us. And following in the footsteps of Christ. So we respond by imitating God and walking in love. Number two, we respond by walking as children of the light. Verses three to nine show us this. When we see and feel the weight of what is going on in the culture, how should we respond? We want to walk in the light. We want to get out of, we want, we, want the, we want darkness chased away. We want it gone. We want to push it back. And, and this is in our own lives. We want it out of here. <clears throat> we want to get out of the darkness. We want to get in the light. We want to walk in the light. And sometimes we just need a reality check. We need to check ourselves. Paul wants to address sins that he says has no business being among God's people. The two things Paul highlights is one, 
sexual immorality, and two, covetousness. Verse 3 says, these things, now listen to this, these things should not even be named among you. And then he goes on to say, as is proper among the saints. I calls us saints. He says, these things shouldn't be named among you, as is proper for the saints. So, sexual immorality and covetousness. I just want to take these one at a time. I don't want to paint with a broad brush over both of them. I, obviously, I can't take a long time with each, each of them. But the, word, the Greek word for immorality is the word pornea. Sounds a lot like pornography. It's a general word, though, used to speak of certainly pornography, but fornication and adultery and homosexual sex, sexual activity, things like that. It's, it's, it's a broad and general word to talk about all of these things. But I do want to take aim this morning at the issue of pornography. It's an epidemic in our culture, and it is destroying lives, families, young boys, and men. It's breaking marriages apart, and it is casting a shadow over the church because the church is far from being touched by it, or excuse me, far from being untouched by it. Perhaps you have heard stats similar to these, but just check this out. Two-thirds of American men view pornography monthly. Two out of three men in America. Men who profess to be Christian are at almost the same rate, which is horrifying, shocking, The average age that a child is exposed to pornography is 11. Internet pornography is 11. Secular psychologists, not not Christian psychologists, these are secular psychologists, Philip Zimbardo and Nikita Duncan. They wrote a book talking about the problem of of boys and young men and their porn addiction and video game addiction and said, what is happening to our men. They said this, we may lose a generation of boys to pornography. A generation of boys to porn. It is so readily available online. This is named among us. It is, but Paul says it shouldn't be. Shouldn't even be named among us as is proper for the saints. And covetousness, covetousness, it's this greed where we want more and more. It comes because we are not satisfied in Christ, clearly. We want more and more. It's produced by being jealous and envious of what others have. I want what they have. I want their husband or their wife or their house or their car or their job or their bank account. I want what they have. And sometimes with some of the advertisements you see on television, it seems like 
a large part of our economy runs on covetousness or on envy or on jealousy. Obey your thirst. Right? That was a little while ago. Sprite logo, or a slogan. Got to keep up with the Joneses, right? And this shouldn't be named among us. But it is. Paul gives two reasons and motivations for speaking out against these sins. He gives two reasons why, why these things should not be named among us. He gives two motivations for why these things should be far from us. And one is in the form of warning, of judgment. And one is in the form of reminder, where he reminds us of the gospel. So the one in the form of judgment, listen to verses 5 and 6, the first part of verse 6. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, or excuse me, comes upon the sons of disobedience. The phrase is, you may be sure of this, and let no one deceive you with empty words. Paul's like, listen to what I'm saying. There are so many deceivers, aren't there? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about your sin problem. Don't worry about that struggle. In fact, let's just call it okay now. Let's just say it's okay. When he says, let no one deceive you, you may be sure of this. No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, you might be thinking, well, he's talking about those people out there. Like outside of church. But he's not. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking. He assumes that a lot of them are Christians and probably some of them aren't. But he's talking to the church. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He wants to warn us. We should not first and foremost, look at what's going on out there and say, I can't believe what's going on out in the world. We first need to look at what's going on in, in-house, in our house here, so to speak, this ch- our church, this church, the church, my family, my own heart, my mind, my actions. Now, thankfully, Paul does not just give a warning Paul is, I mean, Paul is using incredible wisdom here. He gives warning and reminder. Warning of judgment and reminder of the gospel. He doesn't just give one, he gives both. And I'm thankful for that. Because listen to what he says after talking about the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience. He says this, Therefore, do not become partners with them in these things. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
At one time, you were darkness, living in this garbage. At one time, you were darkness, not just dabbling in the darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Brothers and sisters, as we see the legalization of same-sex marriage, let's take a step back. I mean, we should not like that, okay? But let's take a step back and say, okay, darkness, are we walking in the light? Are we allowing dark, the dark activities of sexual morality and covetousness to darken our hearts? Then we need to heed this warning and we need to remember the gospel. Number three, the third way we respond is we need to expose the darkness. We need to expose and push back the darkness. Now, we have to get the first two right before we get this. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect because no one here is. But we have have to be filled with the love of Christ. And we have to be those who are seeking to live lives of integrity before God, walking in the light, before we have any business going out and exposing the darkness. Paul says here, expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He tells us that clearly in verses 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The dark world of gay marriage needs to be exposed to the light. In, uh, which I'm not sure is the most fruitful thing that I've ever uh, ever done, but in conversation online with a couple of people I know, they live out in Oregon, and um, it they didn't like some of the things I was saying about this, and that's okay. Um, what does it mean to ex- to expose this darkness by the light? Well, I was quickly called called names, told I was a hater. Um, But it's unloving. It is unloving to let someone continue down a path of destruction and not say anything. That's unloving. If you if you have a voice in someone's life or seek you should we should seek to have a voice in people's lives, it's not loving. It's almost like, in some people's mind, the opposite of being prejudiced is um, completely affirming of whatever people do. <laughs> and we, just, we, we cannot do that. We can't. So what's the point of exposing darkness? It almost seems like, Paul is Paul saying that we should just try to make people feel uncomfortable? Like, you know... The light comes on, someone's doing something they shouldn't. Oh my goodness, you know. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I don't think he's saying we should, we should catch someone and say, you've been exposed. 
No. It is for the name of God and the salvation of those who are caught in sin. And I think the place we start is we need to learn to speak the truth in love. Reed said something last Friday when we uh, got together to meet. I can't remember exactly the way he put it. And he may have gotten this from someone else. So I, I'm just going to credit Reed with this. He said, compassion um, has backbone. It speaks the truth. But it has incredible mercy and concern for people. And that's what we ought to be, right? We want to speak the truth in love. We want to tell people the truth, but we want to do it in a loving way. We want to do it in a, in a winsome kind of way where we're trying to win people over. We don't, I, we don't care about, we shouldn't care. I do sometimes, but I, I don't want to care about winning an argument. I'd rather win a person. We want to speak the truth in love. We want the flashlight of truth to shine on the dark world of homosexual lifestyles. We want it to. Not so that people just feel bad. We want them to feel loved. We want them to be exposed to the light of Christ. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 14. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I, was, I read that. Verse 14 seems like, a, especially the first part, seems like a really strange phrase to me. But I, I read, read that and thought through that. I was like, what is he talking about here? The point is to shine light in order that dead people, dead in their sins, like, everyone, like we all used to be, would be raised from the dead by the power of Christ. And the reason I say that is because, because Paul uses the word dead. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I had a conversation a, a few weeks back with a leader at a, at, a, at a church, a church that at least denominationally affirms um, gay marriage and um, exuberantly affirms it. And as he and I were visiting, and I just opened up my Bible and went to a couple passages, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. I mean, he, he's, he's uh, uh, well, I won't get into that, never mind. Um, and I just pointed out some passages. Then I, then I went positively to talk about marriage. And it was really interesting. I felt like the Lord gave me um, a lot of grace, but a boldness to say some things that afterwards is like, oh my gosh, did I just say that? But as we were talking, he turned to me and said, oh my goodness, we need to hear things like this in my church. Those who engage in these lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. But the goal is not just to expose someone and say, gotcha. 
It is so that, as 1 Corinthians 6 goes on to say, so that we would be able to say among us someday about homosexual sin and all kinds of other sins, and we can say it today, but we'd be able to say it maybe specifically about this sin, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's got to be the goal. So how do we respond to the gay marriage ruling? Well, I suppose the first thing I said is we, we, ought, to, we ought to lament it and not bury our heads in the sand regarding it. But from Ephesians 5, we ought to respond by imitating God We do that by walking in love, by walking in the light, and by exposing the darkness. Now, as I as I thought of this, um, to imitate God, we need God, don't we? And thankfully, He's given us His Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to empower and strengthen us. So, as we close in prayer, let's just ask God to come by his spirit and fill us afresh, that we would have the strength and the power to walk in love, to walk in the light, to say no to sin, to put it off, and to expose darkness in love and shine the light of Christ on people. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. God, we are weak, and we need your strength. Would you come by your spirit? God, your word says that we shouldn't be drunk with wine, but we are to be filled with your Holy Spirit. And God, we need that so desperately, Lord, not just to go out in our flesh with some good thoughts and good points and do this on our own. God, we can't. God, would you empower us? Would you strengthen us? Would you fill us to overflowing with your spirit, O God? And God, would you use us? Would you use us to love and speak into the lives of those that are caught in this sin? And it's unique because it is indeed celebrated now in our culture, and it has been for a while, and it is also institutionalized. And God, we just want to be light and salt. We want to be love incarnate, speaking the words of life and warning people, and presenting Christ to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay seated if you would. We're going to do Lord's Supper, um, and then the worship team's going to um, bless us as we get ready to partake. The men, you can, once you get the elements, come forward and get ready. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, it's something that we do in remembrance of the past, It's something we do as a foretaste of the future, and it's something we do to partake in the present. I say, what do you mean by that? Well, we want to remember when we do the Lord's Supper. In fact, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We want to remember what Christ did in the past. Jesus Christ went to the cross Not to sentimentally show us his love, but to bear our sin and our guilt 
and our shame and our punishment. His body was broken, his blood was poured out, and he did this for us. Jesus said, my body's broken for you. His blood was poured out for us. So we want to remember the past. We want to remember what Christ has done. And he did this to make us clean. He did this to... um, Luke was talking earlier about the holiness of God, and Matt was talking about that too. And I loved what Matt said about the compass. If you get off just a degree, you go out 10 miles, you're way off, right? You're in a different town. Or if you go 100 miles, you certainly would be. Well, God's holiness is exact like that. And I don't know about you, but I fall short daily. And so I need to remember what Christ has done daily. We all, it's also a foretaste of the future. When we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a foretaste of a future event when we will join our Savior and Bridegroom at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. When it will no longer just be just Jesus here spiritually, spiritually with us, but we will be with him bodily. We will sit around a table and, oh my goodness, it will be quite a celebration. And this is a foretaste of that. And it's also a partaking in the present. When we partake the bread and the juice, we are partaking of Christ himself. He is here. The bread and juice are symbolic of Christ, but he is here with us truly today. We are to eat the bread and drink the juice today in faith, and in so doing, we are taking Christ in. We are partaking of Jesus himself, who is true meat and true drink. So the men are going to pass the elements. The worship team is going to bless us with a song. Keep your bread and juice, and we'll take it all together in just a few moments, okay?